Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. All right, we're starting a new series this morning, and I think uh, the Lord's going to bless it. We're going to be talking about letters to young leaders, uh, and that is the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And what happens here is Paul, late in his life, is writing, and we think he's writing from a prison cell or something like it, and he's writing to say, uh, I know you got some challenges where God has placed you, where I have placed you. But challenges or not, I'm going to read into your life right now some things you need to hear. And we don't even think that just Timothy needed to hear or just Titus needed to hear these things. We think we can overhear these conversations and then maybe we needed to hear them as well. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy. If you look down there, I'll, I'll tell you in here in a minute where I want you to be. I, I had an opportunity when I was uh, at the University of Kansas, uh, we were working on our uh, final degree there. And uh, I decided to do a dissertation on discipleship in higher education. So trying to find professors that based their model of what they did on campus, they based what they did on the Jesus model of discipleship. In other words, grab some people around you, pour into their lives. You think, well, isn't that what everybody does? Not everybody recognizes that they do that, but yeah, pretty much all effective uh, instructors who finally do that sort of thing. They'll gather a small group around them and pour their lives in that small group. So is it possible that uh, that's the kind of thing that ought to be happening? I thought, well, yeah. So let me go find out who are these evangelical professors. It didn't matter if they were on college campuses or universities. I want to go find them and I want to interview them. One of the guys I interviewed was a gentleman named Howard Hendricks. Now, he used to be a household name in evangelicalism, but it's been a while. I was just like, no, has anybody ever heard of Howard Hendricks? Good. Oh, quite a few of us. Good. Well, one of the things he invariably, by the way, I got to sit down with him in his office. Some of these I did by telephone, but his, I got down, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary and was in his office. Boy, we spent about an hour and a half. I was just asking questions and we transcribed it all. And I, I have word for word what he said in my dissertation which, by the way, don't want to brag or anything, was 695 pages long. Half of it was transcripts. By the way, 695, how many pages is that? It's a book about that big, which I found out early in my career is a pretty nice pillow in an office when you're tired. Perfect, really, side for a pillow. So anyway, that's, that's how big it is. 695 pillow-like pages. But one of the things he would invariably say, Howard Hendricks, is that every body should have a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy in their life. So a Paul, it's an older person willing to mentor you to build into your life. Not necessarily someone who's smarter, more gifted than you, but somebody who's kind of been down the road a while and has experienced some things. Somebody willing to share strengths and weaknesses, something that he's learned or she's learned in the laboratory of life. And I just like you to know these things and discern for yourself. Do I need to imitate that or not? Ebony is a Paul. And I love that. I prayed for years for a Paul. <clears throat> Problem was, I'm a pastor, so it's kind of hard sometimes to say uh, within a congregation uh, who's that person. So, and I'm a professor. So, you know, pastors and professors are supposed to have their act together, but I still recognize I'm supposed to have a Paul. I prayed for years. 
And I felt like to some degree he gave me poles along the way. But one day, one day, he showed up. And he showed up about right there in my life. Like literally, right there on the floor. A guy named Crawford Howe. And for five years before he died, we would have an hour-long conversation on Fridays and he would pour into my life. It was a precious thing. It is a precious thing to have a Paul in your life. Let me just say that. Pauls can sometimes rebuke you. Pauls will sometimes encourage you. Pauls will all the time challenge you. So do you have a Paul? I would make it a prayer item right now. Jesus, give me a Paul. Now, Howard Hendricks said, everybody needs a Paul. Everybody needs a Barnabas. That's a soul, brother. Someone who loves you, but it's not too impressed with you. You know what I mean by that? Uh, Somebody to whom you can be accountable. Somebody who's willing to keep you honest. Somebody who's willing to say, hey, man, you're neglecting your wife. Don't give up and don't give me any guff. uh, Chuck Swindoll put it this way. He says, I need somebody in my life. And, you know, there's a lot of pastors right now. Big time, megachurch pastors seem to be failing. Uh, and sometimes the reason they fail is they fall into sin. And Chuck Swindoll was a megachurch mega pastor. He says, you know, I need it. I need someone like a Barnabas to come into my office, be able to put their knuckles on my desk, look me straight in the eye and say, you're not fooling me, man. And read me the right act. Everybody needs Barnabas. At the end of the day, what Barnabas does most of all is encourage us. I love that word encourage. Courage, we get. N is in. To put courage in us that we might be all the people of God we need to be. Uh, I just got a new book. We preached on it the last three weeks. It's called Holy Happiness. I would highly recommend it to you. Written by Dennis Kinnall, but it wasn't written by Dennis Kinnall. It was spoken by him. 1973, in the chapels of Asbury College, now University, Dennis Kinlaw spoke some tremendous messages out of Genesis 1 to 3. And uh, everybody talks about them. To this day, they talk about them. And that's an amazing thing all these many years later. Four decades later, people are still talking about them. And so his granddaughter, named Cricket Albertson, decides, I'm going to transcribe those and put them into print. I, I recommend the book to you. We, we, we spoke out the last three weeks. But it's Holy Happiness, a study of Genesis 1 to 3. Dennis Kinlaw was an extraordinary guy. But what made him most extraordinary was his personal influence. And Cricket, as Dr. K, we call him, Dr. Kinlaw, Dr. K, as Dr. K is failing in his life, he, inv- he, he asks if Cricket will come take care of him. So literally every day, she's doing what you do as a nurse in his life. She's not a nurse. This is just a granddaughter. And she says, when you walked out of the house after being with, and she called him Papa, when you walked out of the house after being with Papa, the world seemed bigger and more hopeful. Isn't that beautiful? I prayed this week, Jesus, could you make us, could you make Day Spring that way? That when people get done listening to us, being around us, that the world just seems bigger. The world just seems more hopeful. So, Everybody needs a Paul. Everybody needs a Barnabas. And finally, everybody needs a Timothy, a younger person in whose life you are building. Now, you're trying to be a model to them, but you're also trying to say, here 
It is the things you might need to know in order to do an excellent job. And Paul is that way with Timothy in 1st and 2nd Timothy here. He's with that in Titus, in the book of Titus. These are pastoral letters from a guy that is a quintessential mentor, building his life into the protégés, affirming, encouraging, teaching, correcting, directing, and praying. Do you have these three people in your life? Get at all costs a Paul. Get at all costs a Barnabas, and get at all costs a Timothy. Now, let's read 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 to 19. Would you please stand in reverence to the Word of God? We are going to cover in our sermon today all of uh, 1 Timothy 1, but we're just going to read verses 15 and following. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Excuse me. I happen to be in 2 Timothy, which is not what we're preaching on today. <laughs> I need a Paul in my right I had to read me the riot act. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Now, this is Paul writing. And he says to Timothy, yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost sinner Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life now now to the king eternal immortal invisible the only God be honor and glory forever and ever amen This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and keeping a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I just want to bring up six points today, and I hope that Jesus speaks through these into your own heart. Number one, we need to be making an investment in the younger generation. Everybody here who's listening has a younger generation. I appreciate uh, one of the teens uh, that's been here. Don't want to embarrass, but I just want to say I appreciate her saying, I think I see a need in our youth group for an older teen to impart her wisdom into younger teens. And you want to talk about being encouraged? This pastor was encouraged when I heard that that was taking place. Y'all, this is an important thing for us to do. Find a younger, remember what, what, what Howard Hendricks said, find a younger and invest your life in them. Not all your life, just a, 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 a significant part of your life in them. This is what he says in verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Timothy, my true child. There's a report from Pew Research that was out a few years ago. And it said this. In 2010, nearly 73% of millennials said they agreed that churches have a positive impact on the country. But five years later, only 50% percent of millennials said the same thing. I mean, that's what you call free fall. 
And it's free fall because, hey, the church is having an incredible impact, but all of a sudden, five years later, they're saying, no, we don't think the church is having an impact. What's interesting here is the older generations had no change at all in how they viewed what the church was doing, which means to me, the older generation might know something that the youngers haven't been convinced of yet, which means to me, the olders need to be spending more personal time I'm not just talking about being in the same room. I'm not talking about being in the same prayer meeting. I'm saying more personal time with those who are younger. And I remember my, my uh, sister's wedding. I was right there, and, and all of a sudden, a guy walked in named Al Coppich. He sat down, and, and uh, I was told that brother-in-law rule, and rule's getting married to my sister, brother-in-law rule actually is in a discipleship group they meet every week in his living room and i thought to myself well since brother rule is getting to be a little bit of a hero of mine it looks to me like that needs to happen in my life too so i got to university of kansas a couple years excuse me i got to asbury seminary a couple years later i dropped that literally dropped on my bag didn't even unpack them just dropped on my bags and i walked over to his office and knocked on the door now he wasn't there but i wanted in his group If you have done this kind of thing in rural's life, then I want you to do that kind of thing in my life. I want you to download Al Coppedge into Matt Friedemann. More so, I want you to impact me with the Jesus as you understand him into my life. Because I like what I see in rural, and I'm beginning to like what I see in you. And for the next three years, I was in discipleship groups. Two of those years, indeed, I was in the living room of Al Coppage as he taught me how to pray, taught me how to memorize scripture, taught me important lessons of the scripture. It was precious. But what happened there is it dawned on me. He's just about, there's three professors uh, and there's about 80 professors at Asbury Seminary. There were three professors that did that. Only three. Only three. Three professors did. I thought, I was fortunate enough to get in on one of those guys. And boy, I'm forever grateful that that happened. You know this book I got, by the way, it has had all kinds of ramifications. I am at Wesley Biblical Seminary. In my 36th year there there now, I am at Wesley Biblical Seminary because of Al Coppage. He gave him my name. Uh, all kinds of wonderful things. First thing that happened to me when I got my, uh, dissert- or my dissertation done is I got a phone call from Africa. Al Coppedge was supposed to come. He all of a sudden can't come. He gave us your name. I've traveled the world because of Al Coppedge. I have served the Western Bible Seminary because of Al Coppedge. But most of all, things like how do you do your family life? I learned first from Al Coppedge. And on and on and on it goes. I thank God for my Paul. I just thank God for my Paul. His name is Al. Almost sounds like a song I know. So the first thing is invest in the younger generation. Second thing is this. There's a problem. And that's part of the reason why Paul writes to Timothy. He recognizes you got problems. And the problems you can start seeing in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. And that love issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. There it is. We ought to just preach on that today. Love. And where does it come from? Love comes from pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. But certain persons 
by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So, you got a problem, Timothy. I'm going to ask that you deal with that problem. Here seemed to be what the problem was. We learn it from these verses as well as other things in 1st, 2nd Timothy. That there was a problem of elitism. An attitude that there's only a few with the special knowledge necessary that can be saved. You need the special. And it was a mystery knowledge. Not everybody can get it. You You can't get it just by reading your Bible. You can't get it just by having this personal relationship with Jesus. No, you, you need to have this mystery knowledge. That's the first problem. Paul comes along and says, no, no. What you need is a salvation based not on mystery knowledge, but upon God's grace through faith. Amen. God's going to shed his grace on you because of your faith that comes from grace as well. Second thing was, idealism, that is, the teaching that matter is evil. There are a bunch of guys that not only thought they had mystery knowledge, but they thought, hey, by the way, everything that's not of the Spirit is evil. And all of a sudden, Paul comes along and says, the goodness of God's creation is real, and we know that because God became material, right? God became man. And this material here, yeah, We made a mistake all the way back there in Genesis. We talked about that. And it has had impact across many, many years, all the way to this current day. But the fact of the matter is, there's goodness there that God wants us to enjoy. And no, material is not evil. Marred material needs redeemed. The third thing was this. There's a fascination with myths and genealogies. And Paul says, the gospel says, there is sufficiency in Bible teaching, and in what we can understand to be good, sound doctrine based on the Bible. Amen? Now I want you to know, this whole thing about good conscience, there are going to be some people all the time, everywhere that say, I'm okay, i got good conscience. I get scared sometimes of that word conscience. What Paul means here is, it's a good conscience based on Scripture based on the teaching of Jesus, eventually we'll say, and based on the teaching of guys like Paul and Peter and John. National Weather Service has strict guidelines, apparently, for thermometers. I'm thinking, I don't need strict guidelines. I just look outside and got one hanging out the door. I'll just look at it and say, whoo, it's hot today. It says 98. But that won't be reported at WAPT. All right? That won't be reported at uh, your favorite news site. And the reason for it is the guys down there say, no, we know where thermometers belong. It should be located. Get a load of this now. This is actually the standard for thermometers. Before anybody official says this is what the temperature is, that thermometer needs to be located over grass in a white ventilated shelter four to six feet off of the ground and at least 100 feet from all paved services, and at least 500 feet from any building. All that to say is that thing dangling outside my door ain't the deal. And the reason is, unless you meet those guidelines, you can't trust the thermometer. And guess what? The Bible comes along and says the same thing about your conscience. 
You can't trust your conscience, nor can you trust your own ideas about pure heart or sincere faith without Scripture. The Bible is the standard. The Bible is the guideline. The Bible is a certain condition upon which we can trust our conscience because God will train your conscience to be all that it needs to be. Now, third thing is this. There's the necessity of sound doctrine. Verse 8 says this, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the godly, ungodly, and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. That's an interesting one. For murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Let me tell you what I think sound doctrine is. I went to seminary, right? Spent a lot of money on my seminary education. Sound doctrine to me is uh, pneumatology, right? You know what pneumatology is? I hope not because I paid to learn. You didn't. So there you go. Pneumatology. Um, It's things like ecclesiology. It's things like... uh, A huge list of ologies. All these ologies. That to me is what good doctrine is. Fascinatingly enough, that's not what good doctrine is to Paul, at least in this passage. He says, let me tell you about good doctrine. Good doctrine speaks into your life as to how you treat your mama and your daddy. Good doctrine speaks in your life as to whether you traffic in slavery. Good doctrine will speak into your life to tell you what you ought to do when you decide, hey, the truth will get me in trouble here. I think I'll tell not a truth. And on it goes. Unholy, profane, striking mothers and fathers, murder, sexually immoral, practicing homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now I'm going to tell you, I, I've often thought, hey, this theology and doctrine thing is really important, and I want to do good on the test, and boy, I did pretty good on the test, but at the end of the day, it's not departed, Matt, from good, sound, honest reality in your life today. It's real life. And Matt, there's some things you need to do and not to today based on good, sound doctrine. I need to hear an amen on that. Number four. (laughs) I love this. I love this. I don't do this to everybody, only the people I love. David Sheffield, come on up here a minute. You're going to know exactly what I'm going to say. I'm going to give you a minute, 60 seconds, and then... That the guy will enter that and put a cane around your neck and drag you off. All right, one minute. Hang on. Don't, I'll, give, I'll give you instructions here, okay? Here we go. Paul says in verse 13, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, <laughs> but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 
Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, says Paul, am the foremost. Again, he says it, but I receive mercy. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, I'm not saying this next 60 seconds is God's will. I just feel like it's God's will, okay? You were one bad hombre. You were one bad dude. But mercy. Thank God. Oh, can you just tell them real quick how much you drank, where it, where it put you, and how mercy found you? Yeah. 60 seconds. Go, man. Yeah, 60 seconds. I think most of you guys know my story, but for the yos that don't, uh, quick, I was an alcoholic, drug addict, sold drug with my kids, got put in prison, in jail. How much did you drink real quick? Gallon a day. Of what? Vodka. Uh, thank God we have a God that is merciful, that loved me anyway. Thank God we have a God that restores. I've been blessed in this church, and God has worked through this church. And uh, Paul is telling the truth. He's a merciful, gracious God. Amen. Man, every time I hear that, he tells it. And, of course, he can tell it across an hour, or he can do it in 60 seconds. I think that was more like 35 seconds, but great job. I'm just going to say this. I love this teaching. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Let me tell you this. If you think today that Christ has come into your life, guess what he's coming to your life for? To save sinners through you. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Can you say that with me? Christ came into the world to save sinners. Wow. And he came into your heart to save sinners through you. And that's what's happening with David today. That's what's happening with so many of you today is I just don't rest in that relationship because now I, I, I get to go to heaven. Yes, you do. But that's not nearly the point that needs to be made. Others might have an opportunity to go to heaven because of Jesus Christ in you. Because if Christ came in the world to save sinners, he came into David Sheffield to save other David Sheffields in the world. Do you believe that? It's not enough that you're going to heaven or that even your family's going to heaven. Oh, there's all kinds of people around you that ought to have opportunity to say yes to him as well. That's the power of testimony. And you need to share your testimony everywhere you go. And I'm thinking... Oh, I'm so glad my testimony is not like David Sheffield's. I was spared a lot of stuff. And then I hear David Sheffield say it, and I say, man, I wish I had that testimony. You know what testimony you really want? Yours. Because God can use your testimony in a way that he can use nobody else's. There's some people that will be reached by Matt Friedman's testimony that cannot be reached by his just because it resonates with some people more. Why? Because Because. And so share it. And allow Jesus Christ to save sinners through you. The fifth thing is this. I just love, I just love, I just love verse 17. It's like, why would he put that in the middle of this whole thing? To the king of ages, immortal, 
invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What's he doing? I'm going to tell you what he was doing. This is in Ephesus. In Ephesus, there was a goddess named Artemis or Diana. Artemis was a many-breasted god. Many-breasted goddess. And this was the worldwide center for Artemis worship. So people came from all over the world to pay homage. And so the whole income of that city is based on that. That very thing, and really only that. The whole city is based on Artemis' work. I mean, they sell little trinkets over there. They do this. Hey, let's give you a tour. Everything is built on, like a tourist town, and Artemis is the tour. And they get the, uh, the funny feeling that if Christianity starts winning, we're doomed. I find it fascinating that one of the things Paul doesn't do is go in and just name the name Artemis and declare she's going down. Instead, what he typically does, understanding who the gods of this particular place are, he says, let me just declare that she is not the king of the ages. Jesus Christ is the king of the ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever to Jesus Christ, to the Father, to the Spirit, and not to Artemis. He doesn't even have to say it. Y'all, there's wickedness in the world. There's evil in the world. And I think it's okay to say some things are wicked. Call them out by name. Goodness knows, he does it with Hymenaeus and Philetus. It's okay. But if that's the primary dynamic of your life, no, that's not okay. The primary dynamic of your life isn't calling out sin. It's saying, he's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. And I know there's some people today that if you listen to everything they said, you'd pretty much think sin is the deal. Sin is not the deal. Jesus Christ is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's got to become the deal. And there's sometimes where Paul, other writers of the Bible, will say nothing about the gods going on in that community, but they do say plenty about Jesus Christ. And that's usually enough to know, hmm, we see the implications here. I'm lost, but now I can be found. But then the community is saying, yeah, but we're established on Artemis. And if Paul wins, we're all going down. Paul says, I'm saying nothing about that. But he's the king of kings. And the Lord, Lord, immortal, invisible, God only wise. The last thing is this. Verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. Wow. First off, let me just say this. The fight's on, y'all. If you belong to Jesus, you're in the middle of it. The fight rages, and you're in the middle of the fight. 
And you can't say, ooh, 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 I don't want to get dusty. Ooh, 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 I don't want to get a bloody lip. Ooh, 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 don't hit me. Don't hurt me. I wish I had the name. Just something came to me. I, I got a former mentor in high school that now writes books for cowboys. I kid you not. He says, I, I write now for cowboys. I said, Why? coach why he says well because God one day said now I want you to stop doing the athletics thing and I want you to write for cowboys I didn't know what that meant he's done it ever since and he he puts out uh, I think quarterly a huge magazine it's beautiful it's all for cowboys cowboy churches I gotta tell you ain't no time soon I'm starting a cowboy church the music alone would drive me nuts but some of you kind of resonate with that, and I get it. I'm okay. I'm not, you're never going to find me a cowboy church. But anyway, he, he digs cowboy churches. He writes stuff for them. And he puts on the front cover incredible things. And on this front cover was the most decorated man. Some of you will know who it is. If you do, shout it out. The most decorated man in World War II. 33 medals. 33 medals. 33 medals. The most decorated World War II guy. They kept trying to say, hey, you don't have to do this anymore. Go be a general or something. He said, nope. I want to be down here where the fight's on. And what's incredible, the reason he kept winning medals was he kept saying, hey, if there's danger over there, I'm running to it. Run to the sound of the guns is what they said. But he would run in the middle of it. They say, man, that dude's going to die here real soon. He never did. He kept living. I thought to myself, man, wouldn't it be great to have a church like that? Wouldn't it be great? I think the Lord always says, yeah, wouldn't it be great if that church had a pastor like that? Wouldn't it be great, man, if you could be like that? And then when you're like that, you can say, follow me. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's run to the sound of the pain. Let's run to the sound of the hard and dark places. Let's move it. Why? Because that's where Christianity is found. There's war going on. And if You belong to Jesus seriously. You'll be in the middle of the fight. He says, Timothy, you're in Ephesus right now. Some of them Artemis people, they hate your guts. It's okay. C.S. Lewis said it like this. How's that quote start off, son? I forget it. Oh my goodness, I just forgot. Went on a mind blank. Didn't drink enough coffee. This world is a war. I'm going to paraphrase now because I forgot the quote. This world is war. And Jesus now wants you to engage in the war. And He calls you to engage in the war. That's what Christianity is all about. He wants now for you to join Him in a campaign of sabotage against the powers and the principalities. Let's just go ahead and put it in the Jackson metro area. Oh, you thought you were going to go to sweet Bible studies and hear nice sermons. I hope you do, says Jesus. But your calling is to be prepared by those Bible studies and those services to go out there and get in the fight. That's what our calling is. So let me tell you, 
we don't know exactly what happened to Timothy. But we have some historians that lived in early Christianity, and one of those guys was named Eusebius. And Eusebius says, all right, after Paul's death, he kept hanging around Ephesus and kept kicking around dust in Ephesus. And about the age of 40 or so, he was made bishop of Ephesus. He outlived Paul by 30 years. And according to one tradition, his tomb is said to be near Ephesus. And he died finally because the Artemis people knew that if they accept the message of Timothy, we're done for. And there you have it, y'all. Some people would say Paul was going to live a life of incredible significance. But when he became a Jesus follower, he became insignificant. And they would say the same thing. And all his followers, even more insignificant than him. And it's true. In the Roman Empire, Roman Empire is big, strong. It's like Washington, D.C. Wow, big. You want, you want to know what happens. You want to know where the power is? It's in the Oval Office. It's at the Department of Defense. It's out the Pentagon. That's where the power is. I was, I, 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 this morning, I got a terrible thing on the back of my foot. So I, I wore my clogs to take my early morning constitution. So I'm out there walking around. And all of a sudden, ouch, I got something in my clog. So it made me stop. And I put it out, and it was a little rock. It couldn't be one one-thousandth of a pound. I mean, nothing. One one-thousandth of a pound. It was like a little video thing. I thought, I stopped my walk for that? But you all know, one little insignificant thing in the right place will make a 245-pound man stop in his tracks and take care of business. And that's Jesus Christ. And that's Paul. And that's Timothy. And that's you. And that's me. Insignificant. Yeah. Not so much. Jesus, I pray for the mustard seed conspiracy in this room right now. It is a conspiracy to be insignificant for your kingdom and for your glory. All we need to do is to obediently do what you've called us to do. To do our Jesus duty. When we do that, (laughs) there is no comparison as to what can happen through our lives versus what happens in Washington, D.C. Help us by some weird miracle to get our brains around that and live this week accordingly. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Dayspring, please stand. Jesus, I love these people. And I pray for each one every day. By name, I pray your blessing on them every day. I thank you for them every day. And Jesus, in so doing, I think you've communicated something to me. That the best days for this congregation are yet to come. And there'll be some things done through this congregation that will never make a seeming ripple anywhere except in the kingdom of God. That's the only place we care about, Jesus, is that kingdom. Dayspring, go live lives 
of insignificance that you might be significant with a capital S. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you.